One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am your host, Margot, And I'm your other host, Emily. Welcome back. Welcome. So we have a pretty exciting topic today. It's rom-com week in the closet. We record in my closet. That's why I said that. Sorry. staring at Margot's (laughs) lapel pins as we speak. It's great. I think it's actually kind of serendipitous time that we decided that this week would be our uh, golden age of rom-com weeks, because I just discovered a a bunch of rom-coms that I truly love. Not only do they not hold up well, but also it's their 20th anniversaries this year. Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting here is that there are a a sprinkling of a few that that have have stood the test of time and, and ultimately paved the way for, I think, some of the iconic movies that came out later on in the 2000s that I think fixed a lot of the issues that came up in those late 90s movies. Before we dive in, what, what's your favorite rom-com? I don't think that we talked about this before we started recording, so now, now I'm curious. Rom? Now you mean rom-com or like teen rom-com? Let's do both. Why not? All right. Um, my favorite rom-com is probably When Harry Met Sally of all time, mm-hmm. um, just because Nora Ephron is beautiful and genius. And um, my favorite teen rom-com is probably 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh, good. Well, I'm so glad that you're covering your own favorite movie. Yes, yes. Very, very excited. So I'm going to lay down the groundwork a little bit here. So we are, picture this, uh, late 90s. Um, so demographically, there are 30, in 1999 alone, there are 30.9 million Americans that were aged 12 to 19 years old. And this is pretty significant because... This is the first wave of the baby boomers teenagers. So there are a few Gen X exceptions, of course, of boomers having Gen X kids, but essentially kind of that crutch of, you know, peak baby boomers. So we're talking early, mid fifties, um, have kids who are in high school right now at that very point who are teenagers. Um, back then they were not called millennials. We, they were called Gen Y or the echo boom generation referring to an echo. I know it's a weird name. That's a terrible name. It's a terrible name, but it's supposed to be the echo of the baby boomers. Sure. I get it. It's in the name, but it still is awful. And I think Y is much better. It's garbage. (laughs) Who does the naming of generations? I don't know. Some poor sociologist who maybe has a creative writing minor. I don't know. 
That seems generous. I feel like it's someone much less qualified, but okay. Either way, I have notes. Much like hurricanes, I have notes. If you guys ever need someone to come in for a creative brainstorm on, like, what to name things, like generations of people or hurricanes or football teams, I'm available. My fees are, I mean, they're high, but they're negotiable. (laughs) So, at this point, this is going to be um, high schoolers at the time or people who were born around the early 1980s. So, they're in high school, and there's this, like, teen-centric boom. And the reason this happens is on top of this crazy population spike, you or uh, just this population peak you also have um scream comes out so there's clueless of course which is a huge hit then um also an adaptation also an adaptation of a jane austen novel emma and um and then scream comes out which was kevin williamson at the time i believe was in his late 20s and we talk about him in our sexy teen thrillers episode there's also an episode of sequel harder where i talk about all three screen movies or actually all four because i also talk about the fourth one even though i didn't want to because i don't recognize it as emma, canon emma roberts oh god i mean that had so much potential and it just Mm-mm. didn't work out so great but yes Mm-mm. there are plenty of other places to hear our thoughts about scream which is a great movie so anyway so kevin williamson uh screen writes uh, puts together Scream, it becomes a huge hit at the box office, full with all these unknown teenage actors, and basically studios just start throwing money at young screenwriters. Um, basically, keep it as low budget as you can, um, and, and at the time, you're casting all these unknown actors. So basically, the first big rom-com we're going to talk about um, specifically ties to what we were just talking about is um, Can't Hardly Wait. Except it wasn't that big. No, it was it didn't was make not. any money. It only made about $25 million, but it was on a less than $10 million budget. Sure. I think that this just also sort of contributes to the um, cult following of Ethan Embry. Yes. Because before this, it was Empire Records. Yeah. And, and I think and that, that people kind do. of like hold, yeah, people hold all three of, well, yeah, that thing you did, that thing you do did well, I think, at the time. At least it was critically well received. Yeah. And even in hindsight, I think it's pretty beloved. But Empire Records and Can't Hardly Wait sort of had a, um, they hit later. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and so Can't Hardly Wait, the two screenwriters are Deborah Kaplan and Henry Elfont. Uh, they had just completed the script for a very Brady sequel. Uh-huh. It's the sequel to the Brady Bunch movie. Um, they're in their 20s, and they just got thrown a bunch of money uh, by Sony, and they're inspired by the party scenes and all those teen comedies from the John Will- uh, John Hughes era. And specifically the party in say, scene in Say Anything, which is actually a Cameron Crowe movie, but they're really inspired by how those all work out, all the different vignettes that are taking place throughout those scenes. Um, I think everybody thinks that Say Anything is a John Hughes movie for some reason. It's, it's not. <laughs> it's actually one of the few Cameron Crowe movies that work. It really, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think that and Almost Famous are probably... That's about it. Yeah. Yeah, little little Jerry Maguire. Anyway, but not Elizabeth Town. Oh <laughs> no! I, that's one of the like handful of movies I walked out of. I'm like, this is incoherent, <laughs> and just left. Oy. Okay. Um, so anyway, so they're inspired by these party scenes and teen comedies, and this movie is actually originally titled The Party, which thank God they that changed makes- that. But it also makes tons of sense because I would say 90% of the movie takes place at this party. And outside of the weird Barry Manilow, well, I actually thought the Barry Manilow stuff was funny. It's hilarious. Um, But outside of that, most of the scenes that don't take place in the party are sort of like, all right, like you just want to be there. You don't want to leave it. Right. And that is why the budget was so low. It's like basically they had to, the the writers were like, how can we make a movie super cheap where all we have to do is basically rent a house? And that's kind of what they did for this movie. It takes place predominantly in this house, outside this house, 
in somewhere in, in the, the valley. pool. Yeah, in the pool house adjacent right. to the house. Exactly, and that's pretty much it, with an exception of like a high school graduation, a scene at the diner at the end. Right, but and, what do like, you need to station. shoot a high school graduation? Just like a giant lawn. We don't giant see a school. Lawn. We don't see anything. And kind of a fun fact about that: you hear some audio voiceover of these two people gossiping to each other, and they're two like one male high school student, one female high school student. It's actually the directors or the writers who are uh, and talking to each other. It's oh okay. Oh, yeah, at the very yeah, top. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're like, okay. can you believe this? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, for all we know, that graduation could have been shot at a fucking park. You just Anywhere. need bleachers. Anywhere. <laughs> and it's actually interesting because they were basically living in L.A., and they got all their friends to do this movie. So it was a lot of their friends. Deborah Kaplan at the time was dating Brecken Meyer. They actually were married for about a decade and split about seven-ish years ago. This is almost as traumatic as when I recently found out that Ad-Rock was married to Ioni Sky. Yeah. Speaking of It'll say be- anything. Yeah. Anyway, that's just as shocking to me. Yes. But I think that's what's most charming about Can't Hardly Wait is that it definitely has, as somebody who uh, went to film school, a real film school-y vibe. Yes. In the best way possible. I mean, they basically got all their friends. And so at the time, it's like Breck and Meyer was friends with Ethan Embry and Peter Facinelli. And what a get pre-Twilight days. Yeah, pre-Carlisle. <laughs> uh. And Ethan Embry, of course, uh, who turns out was for a lot of this filming in addition to the filming of Empire Records. You don't say! <laughs> and we found out also the pot brownies in Empire Records were real pot brownies. So obviously they're friends. And then Breckenmeyer also brings in Seth Green to play the role of Kenny, which is just one of the best. Someone who like missed the audition to be the Chris Kirkpatrick of Sync With those fucking goggles. Yeah, ski goggles. And then he's got the backpack, the love kit that just has... <laughs> Condoms and all sorts of... So at first we were going to make this like a 1999 rom-coms episode, but Emily really wanted to talk about Can't Hardly Wait, even though it was in it came out in 1998. Yeah. But I watched this movie for the first time at a slumber party when it was like New Year's Eve going into 1999. And that fucking backpack and those goggles. I mean, every time I saw like a suspect, like large backpack, I was like, love making kit. It was... <laughs> I was very sus of dudes with backpacks for a while. Um, and those goggles, it, they were such a trip. Well, why was that a thing in the 90s? Goggles, le- oh, yellow sunglasses. Like your lenses are yellow? Yes. I didn't know. Is that an East Coast thing? Maybe. I, I remember a lot of yellow sunglasses. I had someone in my seventh grade um, do leopard print hair like Chris Kirkpatrick. Oh, yes. Yeah. For a year. That always seemed like a lot of maintenance, but I appreciated it because, much like Lisa Rinna, leopard print is also my favorite color. (laughs) (laughs) So it comes out in 1998, like you just said. Um, It stars a bunch of unknowns for the most part. Um, Lauren Ambrose plays uh, Denise. Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under. um, Also has an amazing Broadway career. Like, she was nominated for a Tony last year. Is that what she's doing now? Yeah, she does a lot of theater. That's awesome. Um, And she was nominated last year for a Tony for the revival of My Fair Lady. I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, you have the really interesting casting choice here is Charlie Corsmo, who plays the nerd character. Oh, right, right, He gets accepted to Harvard and is a member of all the clubs. And that's the interesting thing. I love the opening where you see their yearbook picture, essentially. It's like... It's they, they they do a freeze frame and then they show you their the name of the person, their activities, their quote their and where quote. they're going to school. Who had the jewel quote? Like oh, a true friend oh. will stab you in the front. <laughs> 
No, that was the Oscar Wilde quote that I think Denise had, and then Jennifer Love Hewitt had a jewel quote, which was, um, it was like, I'd like to see the world at a different angle, or something, <laughs> like, about as deep as a baby pool. <laughs> right. I mean, wasn't her whole thing was, like, she was going to go to some program? She's, so she is not... She is not going anywhere for school. He, yeah. Preston, uh, Ethan Embry's character, gets into, like, a Kurt Vonnegut RIP program. So there we go. So he gets to go um, to a liberal arts school for the summer, and Kurt Vonnegut is going to teach him how to write. And, uh, and that's, yeah. So he's in love. He's got the, uh, that letter he's mm-hmm. going to give her. Barry Manilow, Barry yada, Manilow, yada. And then, of course, Jenna Elfman's, like, amazing cameo <laughs> as the angel stripper, where she was going to go meet Scott Bayo. This is pre-knowing everything we know about Scott Bayo now, by the way. I have a fun Scott Bayo story. Please tell, Margo. When a friend of mine worked at the Malibu Pet Store in the Malibu Country Mark... <laughs> Scott Bayo once lost his shit on her oh, and, it, no. and left the store screaming, don't you know who I am? And she said, not really, because she didn't grow up watching, like, Happy Days or anything. She, she had no fucking idea who Scott Bayo was. And that's my favorite <laughs> Scott Bayo story. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? Like, if anybody should be screaming that in 2006, it should definitely not be you, Scott Baio. The Jenna Elfman moment, real quick, was like a real David Lynch portion of the movie that almost feel like it didn't fit, but makes a ton of sense why you put it there. Yeah, it's kind of a perfect in-between. I really think it happens kind of smack dab in the middle of the movie. Mm -hmm. And it's a great little scene, and she's uncredited. That's really interesting with Can't Hardly Wait. A lot of uncredited cameos. People just doing favors? Yeah, yeah. Like, Melissa Joan read the script she was doing Sabrina <laughs> at the time she was like I just want to be in this shit and they were like well we've got this one role and she's like cool put me in but she's not credited in the um, credits neither is Jerry what? O'Connell yeah oh god Jerry O'Connell oh my god our generation's Matthew McConaughey of like they I get older and they say the same age oh like god. I mean him showing up at a high school party it, it definitely happens to you in your real life oh, that's totally. all I'm gonna say absolutely the interesting thing, though, I will say about this nerd character, it's the kid from Hook and Dr- Dick Tracy. So they cast this kid who had stopped acting after he was a child actor, went to MIT, was a physics <laughs> major, and after sophomore year, he's like, fuck it, I want to do movies again. And so his agent gets him this role, and originally it was the kid in Little Man Tate who had been cast, but they fired him on day one of shooting because they didn't like his acting. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> All right, go back to your story. Your acting sucks. Get out of here. Yeah. Um, the, I was actually going to say something about Melissa Joan Hart. Yeah. Um, I can't believe she's uncredited because she's kind of the best part of the oh, movie. Oh, she's excellent. She starts the whole thing off with the whole sign my yearbook bit. It's so good. It's so good. And isn't it? It's not her house. It's somebody else's no, house. No, no, no. So this one girl, I forget what the actress's name, but it is like a different girl's house. Green. I mean, her whole house is destroyed. And yeah. also, I love Donald Faison from Clueless fame, the being a part Parker. of the, yeah, that's its own spinoff movie. Yes. So what's interesting about that is Deborah Kaplan and Her- Henry Elephant will go on to direct and write Josie and the Pussycats, which I absolutely oh. stand for. It is one of the best underrated movies of all time. So good. Boy band in that is du jour, and that has Donald Faison, um, Breckin Meyer, oh, and right. Seth Green. And then the fourth guy I don't remember. I feel like Lauren B right now. I'm like, wow. Wow. Anyway. Emily. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Quick thing of one final thing about the, the nerd character. Um, he goes to MIT, he went to MIT, was part of the Federalist Society at Yale Law School, and is now a law professor at Kate Western Reserve 
law school. If any of you listeners out there, we're not that big yet, but if any of you went to law school there and had him as a professor, please let us know. We want to hear your story. Email us at oldmillennialspod at gmail.com. Can't hardly wait. Has all these amazing before they were famous people. So you have Jason Siegel. He's um, the watermelon stoner guy. So he's just like eating. Oh, right. By, yeah, by the pool. Got yeah. it. Brecken, and then he's like a dinosaur, that whole bit. Yes, yeah. And then, um, so the best friends of Peter Facinelli, who we will by later. The, I'm sorry, Peter Facinelli looks way too fucking old to oh, be yeah. in high school. He had Even had a kid at that point. Of course. He's, during filming. He's 35. Oh, like, my God. The first time I saw that movie, even as a child, I was like, he doesn't look like he's a teenager. Jennifer Love Hewitt, obviously, I buy. Yeah. Ethan Embry, sure, okay. Lauren Ambrose, yes, of course. But. Come, Peter, come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's also Jamie Lee Presley. Yes. I think Is that pre... I mean, this is obviously before um, uh, uh, whatever her Ed show was. Oh, My Name is Earl. There we go. Yeah, so so that she's one of Jennifer Love Hewitt's best friends. Sarah Rue from Popular yep. is the Earth Girl who's like, you know, little sheep people. Um, <laughs> bah, bah, bah. Bah. Leslie Grossman is in this. Oh, yes! So, so the girl who's ready to have sex who was like, oh, he's, he'll do, like, for Seth Green's character. Oh, right. Summer from Clueless. Oh, my goodness. Well, that I remember, but Leslie Grossman was the friend that was like, are you sure? <laughs> She's, he's like, But it's sure, funny that two, two popular people, um, Sarah Rue, or people that would go on to be in Ryan Murphy's yes, popular, yes. Sarah Rue and Leslie Grossman. Yes, Clea Duvall is in this. Selma Fantastic. Blair is one of the hot girls that Mike hits on, and they're yes. just like, and she's loser. like, oh, you're gross. Um, it is just a who's who. I mean, just spotting people in the crowd. Yes. Because I think the Jason Siegel thing especially, I feel like somebody did, I feel like this. But I, I, it, at the end of the day, sometimes a bunch of tumblers all kind of blur together. But I'm pretty sure on a Tumblr page somewhere, somebody did a side-by-side comparison of Jason Siegel being a stoner in Can't Hardly Wait and Jason Siegel being a stoner in Knocked Up. I mean, it's basically the same character. Yes. Yes. That's what I'm saying. I yes. feel like somebody has done uh, some sort of uh, deep dive on this for, like, Vulture or the Cut or something, and we just missed it, but it's there. Way to get the It's ball not a stretch. <laughs> um, but in terms of, you know, what else I have to really say about this, I think it's pretty awesome. This was one of those examples of where they had young screenwriters who were fairly close to the source material who had been in high school within the last 10 years who penned a really good screenplay, um, made it, you know, as accurate as it could be. For the most part, I think this is a pretty solid movie that was really underrated at the time, and over time, thanks to Blockbuster and subsequent DVD, whatnot, streaming rentals. Yeah, is it on Crackle? I think my free subscription. How much longer do you have on that, Emily? <laughs> I maybe, like, three hours. <laughs> Wait, they give you, like, a certain amount of hours that you can watch? before the Crackle, Margo, who knows? <laughs> I don't know how Crackle works. Neither do I. I need to, I'm almost done with Champagne Ill, and then I'm canceling this YouTube premium <laughs> subscription. Uh. Okay, so I had um, a less fun time rediscovering that Never Been Kissed is deeply problematic. <laughs> I, uh, In my mind, I, I still regard Never Been Kissed to be a really great, sweet movie. Yeah. But please keep in mind that several... High school teachers from my high school have gotten in trouble for inappropriate relationships yeah. with students. So maybe <laughs> of this time, what man. the fuck, Michael Vartan? What the? Fuck? We can, we will get there because I want to start with the positives, and I think I kind of want to like. There are parts of the movie too beyond Michael Vartan, mainly David Arquette's character, oh, yeah, as being I think 
actually more problematic than Michael Vartan trying to hit on a 25-year-old. I think the problem with Michael Vartan's character... Okay, never mind. I'm not going to spoil it. I always do this. I start at the end and then work my way up to the beginning. Okay. Never been kissed. It recently turned 20 because it came out April 9th, 1999. Um, it was written by Mark Silverstein and Abby Cohen, who wrote most recently I Feel Pretty, which if you saw that or read anything about it, um, let's just say they haven't really grown as writers since Never Been Kissed. No. They kind of, they're writers that kind of like lean heavily on stereotypes, probably because that's their influences, because they probably grew up in the 70s and 80s where a lot of stereotypes were used easily and freely, and that's just sort of how you, in some ways, you could say that it's lazy writing. You could also just say it's like a product of what their references are. I'm not really sure because I don't know them personally. Yeah. But they wrote Never Been Kissed. This, I think this was their first big hit because before that there are a couple of credits that I don't recognize. And this movie was um, directed by uh, Raja Gosnell who will later go on to direct... Oh, I'm sorry. I was getting ahead of myself. I was thinking about the next director who goes on to direct from Dustin to Kelly. That's not this director. <laughs> this director edited Home Alone and then was giving his given his directorial debut with Home Alone 3. I feel like that kind of sets a really good stage. Uh, Never Been Kissed stars Drew Barrymore as Josie Geller. She is the Chicago Sun-Times youngest copy editor. Uh, she's 25, which, I don't know, is that young for a newspaper now? Maybe not, because now you, with like print and online and all that, that's right. broken down a lot of stuff. But I bet you in 1999, that was super young. Sure. It's like the, oh, I'm a fashion editor at a beauty magazine, and I'm 26. What to do? I mean, that's how to lose a guy in 10 days. But yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that we're starting to move away from uh, rom-com leads being any sort of, being in a journalism field, period. Because there are just many other jobs. They don't all need to be journalists or reporters. And they journalists or reporters for so for the longest long. time oh my god anyway drew barrymore aka josie's dream is to become a reporter so when the paper's publisher gary marshall who gives a pretty excellent performance in this as a curmudgeon who is trying to foster some talent um who also has like a young son who he doesn't realize is allergic to peanuts uh, gives Josie an investigative feature requiring her to go undercover as a high school senior. And it all seems like she's finally going to get her big break until she remembers that high school was actually a nightmare hellscape for her. So how will she do with her do-over? She's not Josie Grossy anymore, Margo. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. So the movie does start out well and not as problematic as you would think. Uh, the humor holds up pretty well, more or less. But once Josie starts to become frustrated at not really making any progress with, like, the in-crowd um, and her fucking brother shows up, that's when everything starts to take a turn. Because I feel like we kind of spend a lot of time with Josie sort of repeating this pattern of falling back into, like, her ner her nerdy tropes. And she befriends Lily Sobieski, and she joins, like, a mathletes team. And the they denominators. Do, they do homework after school. They can't go to the pit. Oh, yeah. And, like, break that story. No. Uh, because it, they're not cool enough, and they all, like, make fun of Lily Sobieski and, like, call her, like, a dog face or something. Yeah, I remember... She's, like, a super mom. <laughs> I know. It's just... I. This is a theme between the two movies that I talk about, because the other one is Can't Hardly Wait. It's ridiculing women who... You would not, you would be hard pressed to be like, yeah, they're fucking ugly. The whole thing is that they just wear glasses. 
They wear glasses and so they're ridiculed we're, and they're called geeks and nerds. Well, yeah, I need glasses to see. We're ugly humans, apparently. Yes, Margo, we're undesirable. We're both wearing glasses. But Emily, once I take my glasses off, oh my god, I'm hot. You stone fox. Oh my god, you hottie. <laughs> Can you believe all it was is just the glasses that were holding me back? <laughs> so her failed attempts to ingratiate herself with the popular cat, the popular crowd of guy, Kristen, Kirsten, and Kirsten. Um, kind of go unsuccessful until she catches a break when her more charismatic brother, played by Rob Arquette, or I'm sorry, her more charismatic brother, Rob, played by David Arquette, sees a chance to make himself the athletic superstar that he should have been all along instead of working at the Tiki Hut, which is like a tiki-themed printing place. Oh, yeah. Which I felt was never a real viable business model, so no wonder it was empty at all hours so she could just visit her brother and... <laughs> Talk to him about stuff. I love people in movies who, like, have a job, quote-unquote. Like, like people from the real world have yes. jobs where they just, like, sort of show up yes. for, like, maybe an hour and yes. then, like, dip out. Yes. You never, ever see them doing work. Which, granted, I get it. Like, people don't want to actually see someone performing a menial task. But Marco, you get what I'm trying to say. It was the 90s. People didn't have to work. It was the 90s. Everything no was work. great. So, Rob... Should have been a baseball star, but he blew his scholarship by being a stoner and kind of a piece of shit. And so he re-enrolls in high school with his sister. And this is honestly more than just the teacher hindsight with Michael Vartan. Uh, this is the part that always rubbed me the wrong way. He Ugh. fucking knew how old he was. And yet he still proceeded to bang this one chick who was a gymnast who could do the splits. And it was... All kinds of gross. So I don't know if they ever actually bang, or is it? It's. it's I mean, I don't think so. But there's also some heavy allusions to him like doing a lot of coke. Right, and like, what's even creepier about this is on no. First off, no high school girl should be like dating a 25 year old dude. But the fact she's, I but think he's she's 16. On she's top of six, that. and he's also just lying to her. Yeah, she doesn't right, know. She right, thinks right. that she's dating no. someone that's her own age. So that coupled with Rob making his sister's transformation into self acceptance about him in some way. Yeah. Those two things combined always sort of rubbed me the wrong way, and I never really liked that part of the movie. It was the one part that didn't really quite work for me. Yeah. I always thought it was a little bit gross, and I it also had sort of like a Jerry O'Connell and Can't Hardly Wait vibe, where this dude just wanted to relive his glory days. Right. And so he, I feel like it just happens to be that he helps his sister along the way by perpetuating a bunch of gross rumors about her that he, like, fucked her and she's great in bed. Yeah. Which I was always like, eh. I know she's your sister, and you're trying to help her, and you you know what's real and what's not. But it's still kind of gross. And the fact that that's what launches her into popularity is oh kind of insane. One of the re rumors he spreads is that she dated the drummer from the Big Bad Voodoo Daddies, which is just such a 1999 sentence. Yeah. <laughs> I, the only thing I have to say to that, and th if we didn't go see Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, we saw uh, Voodoo Glow Skulls, uh -huh. but went to their concert once, and my friend's brother turned around after we saw her, like, ninth greaser. He's like, Sandy! <laughs> And anytime anybody mentions one of those, like, big bands, that's all I ever think about. <laughs> Sandy! It's good Travolta right there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. I lost my place. Okay. Regardless, he is the push that makes Josie popular. And so she starts to ditch her best friend and in favor of the cool crowd. And honestly, I feel like the dissolution of their friendship is more traumatic than any of the nonsense that goes down, again, with Mr. Coulson. Right. Which, okay, we can just kind of get into that they start flirting he recognizes that she is smarter than all the other girls which feels like grooming now yeah it just doesn't sit well no my rationale when i first was obsessively watching this movie was like oh he can like 
you can just sense when other people are 25 like you. Yeah. That's not a real thing. No. But I was also 11, so, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. But <laughs> he gets, he flirts with her on the Ferris wheel, even though he has a girl. So this is problematic on multiple levels. He's an older man pursuing who he thinks to be a 17-year-old. Right. Who is one of his students. She is going to graduate soon, but that's not an excuse. He also, to make it all worse, has a girlfriend that he has admitted to his student he doesn't know if he wants to commit to. So now he's, like, roped in his student into, like, his weird relationship problems. Does he not have friends? You know, to, like, I just talk don't think he has these... boundaries. Yes, that too. He mostly doesn't have boundaries. Um, and then, to top it all off, he, like, flirts with her on a Ferris wheel. And then when she comes clean about her age, he gets mad at her. And she has to apologize to him for not being, for saving him from being convicted of statutory rape? I mean, there is not one point in the end of that movie where he apologizes or feels any sort of remorse. And this is not to take away, that baseball mound waiting moment is, I cried. Oh, I know. I, it makes me emotional. Even, I can recognize, like, you can realize that two things are true, right? Like, you can recognize that it's deeply problematic, but that there is some piece of you that when you saw it innocently before you had hindsight and... Um, the vocabulary to address what you have found to be maybe not necessarily what something that was good in your gut the right, whole time. Right, right. Um, you can recognize that that's happening as well as like, wow, this is like really powerful. Because in my notes I say later on, uh, this whole movie kind of hinges on Drew Barrymore's charm. Yeah. She kind of shines a lot of turds. And you and the, I think the biggest part of this whole movie is that you relate to her terrible, awful experience as an unpopular teenager in high school who was bullied so much, and you root for her. And if you don't buy into her redemption story and you don't root for her to want to have a much better experience, have this, like, popular experience that she's always wanted and find love and actually finally get kissed, if you're not... If you don't get on board with that, then, yeah, this whole Mr. Coulson-Michael Vartan storyline, it's fucking gross. Oh, absolutely. Because it's not like Never Been Kissed invented this student-teacher trope. I mean, I'm, I mostly blame Lolita for normalizing this sort of kind of bullshit. Yeah. But it's not like this movie also did anything to sort of make those tropes better or added, like, maybe, like, a fun twist. It wasn't satire. And, I'll, I'll tell you that much. And it put even more shame on that stereotype of that trope where... It's always the woman's fault, the young girl's fault for being the seductress. Like, how can the guy resist? You know, and that that makes me really his, frustrated. His, his reaction when he's like, "I can't believe you! I trusted you!" Was like, shouldn't you be fucking stoked that she's a twenty-five-year-old with a college degree and, that and you're not some not gonna fucking be in jail? Yeah, she's not some fucking high school chick. Yeah, the fact the way that he turns it around on her is very gross, and it just makes you feel really icky. But the thing that this movie nails really right, other than giving... I think that the people that have the most depth in this movie are obviously Josie. Yes. And Lily Sobieski's character. Yes. They have the most depth. And when she's... When Drew Barrymore saves Lily Sobieski from the same horrors of her own problem of being egged, like, thinking that this is her moment, instead of having dog food thrown on yeah, her, which Alpo. is fucking awful. What the... Yeah. Um... The fact that she gets to essentially save herself, but her proxy, Lily Sobieski, like, that moment is so moving. It is. And I think that the thing that, besides nailing those two characters and giving them a lot of depth, they also nail that no matter what year it is, high school is a hellscape. Yeah. Past, present, future, it just is 
because of the very nature of high school. And the tropes and the stereotypes and the people that you saw in 1985 or 1986 still exist 13 or so years later. They just have different names and different haircuts. Exactly. And, you know, they're dressed contemporarily or right, whatever. Right, And I think that that's something that they nail. And that's okay why some, that's okay for me why some of those stereotypes exist. But since we're in these stereotypes anyway, the ones that sort of stick out that kind of gross me out the most are actually Josie's coworkers. Yes. So Molly Shannon plays Anita, Josie's coworker, and she's depicted as the polar opposite of Josie. She's basic, they basically call her a giant fucking slut, but she's a dumb slut because she can't even teach a fucking sex ed class. Womp womp. What a stupid slut. Let's blame America's education system, guys. Well, yes, but also the way that the movie sort of posits is like, you're such a slut, teach this class. And then she's like, I don't know what I'm doing because I'm so slutty and my slut brain doesn't work like that. That is gross. Um, and then the other part is Josie being encouraged to have an affair with her teacher by her boss, John C. Riley, who's also sleeping with his underling, his employee, Anita, a.k.a. Molly Shannon. And it just doesn't, that, that whole tropey inner office, like, kooky romance. Yeah. Upon Aww. further, and then, of course, the, also the dude in the van who is her sidekick. George, yeah. That was a little bit of, like, he's a black guy that smokes weed in a van. Oh, no, like, my God. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he's a sensitive ear for her to lean on. It was a little bit too much there, too. Um, But overall, again, and I'm not the only one to say this because Roger Ebert wrote a sizably, uh, well, it leaned more on, like, a favorable review. One of the few because Never Been Kissed is rotten on uh, Rotten Tomatoes right now at 55%. Ebert says that a majority of this movie works and rests on the charm of Drew Barrymore. And the script leaves a little bit of something to be desired and leans a little too heavily on tropes. But nonetheless, it was still, it it might not have been a critical success, but it was definitely a box office success. And it made quite a bit of money. 85 million. It was Drew Barrymore's first feature to produce. This was also a big role for James Franco and Jessica Alba, who James Franco is problematic in and of himself. And also kind of makes sense why, like, Busy Phillips has, like, a strange connection to him through, like, her husband and oh, Freaks yeah. and Geeks. Oh, yeah, 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 um, <laughs> Oscar winner Octavia Spencer is also in this movie as Josie's friend. Uh, it is currently streaming on HBO Go slash now, whatever one you have. And most importantly, the tiki post where Rob worked is now a Cold Stone Creamery in Monrovia. Excellent. And that is Never Been Kissed. Um, I still love this movie. I have a soft spot for it, for sure. Yeah. But I think that it's also a good movie. I think a lot, I think it does hold up better than a lot of other movies that are a little bit more problematic. Like, I think She's All That maybe doesn't hold up as good. But I think Never Been Kissed is a good movie to use, not as, like, a what not to do, but is a good conversation starter, like, why some of these tropes don't serve us, and what about this movie that really works that we can take and use in other TV and movies. And I think that something like Pen15 takes the trope of, like, middle school is hell and kind of plays on those tropes really well but makes it really specific. And I think that's another thing that Never Been Kissed did really well. No, I agree. I absolutely agree. I think there are some real moments of redemption there and just overall that universal feeling about high school and that time of your life being hell. Yeah, I think it stands. All right. What else? You got your 10 things I hate about you. Yeah, and this is one where I think apart from a, a few moments here and there, this one has really aged 
fairly well, actually. Um, so this was directed by Gil Jutinger, who, uh, this was kind of the biggest thing he's ever done. He did a bunch of TV episodes before that, um, later directed a few minor movies, but ultimately this is really kind of the standout for, for his career, for directing. This was his feature film debut. This is also a standout for Letters to Cleo. Yes, yeah, and we'll talk about that. So the, the two writers of this script are Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith. And this is a writing team that would eventually write the scripts for Legally Blonde, Ella Enchanted, She's the Man, which is another Shakespeare adaptation. Uh, and also an excellent Amanda Bynes movie. Beautiful. The House Bunny, which I like because I love Anna Faris. Um, and then The Ugly Truth, which I didn't like. Um, but uh, the House Bunny, there's also a really, sorry, super quick sidebar. There's also a really good interview with Anna Faris where she talks about the original House Bunny idea. It, I think it's a New York Times interview. Oh. It's worth the read because oh, it was, was going to be much darker really well mm-hmm. and same thing with 10 things i hate about you actually um and i'll go into that a little bit so what's interesting is uh kirsten smith and Karen mccullough meet each other in the mid 90s um and they met up and started writing this script on cocktail napkins over drinks and later started continuing to write the script over male correspondence um they loved clueless and they wanted to revisit a classic story much like clueless revisited emma and put a modern twist on it um, someone had suggested The Taming of the Shrew to them, which is a pretty misogynistic Shakespeare play, if you've ever read it, basically grooming this woman into being something that's subservient, can't think for herself, and really is kind of caving into a man's ideals of what a woman should be. Um, they believed that their female protagonist would be would never be tamed because she was shrewd, in fact. So she was, you know, never going to be tamed. That was a part of her personality. And she would need to meet a guy, a guy. She would need to find a guy who would meet her there, and not try to change her in any way, shape, or form. They really reson. What really resonated with the personality for Cat Strafford was at the time. I believe it was Kirsten Smith who was really into Riot Girl movement, which uh, Margot tomorrow is going to see. Um, Bikini, Bikini Kill. Very jealous. Um, but basically, uh, they wanted this Cat Strafford character to be, you know, who's really into Riot Girl music, was a huge feminist, was just this outspoken person who was way beyond her years in high school, wasn't going to take any of the misogynistic bullshit that came with that, and wasn't going to cave in to, or conform to any stereotype that she needed to be something. I mean, apart from Daria, I feel like she was one of the few feminist icons in pop culture that young girls could kind of turn to if you hadn't quite discovered Kathleen Hanna or Slater Kinney or any... L7 or any other number of feminist punk rock bands. Absolutely. This is sort of your gateway drug. Absolutely. And I'll just kind of quickly go over the plot here. So um, basically, uh, the story is um, Kat and Bianca are sisters. They're played by Julia Stiles and Larissa Olenek, who had just been on Alex Mack in the Babysitter's Club movie. And Julia Stiles was pretty much an unknown, apart from a few roles here and there before then. Um, so the two of them are sisters. Their dad, played by Larry Miller, who's a frequent guest mm. on uh, Gary Marshall movies. He's their dad. He's an OBGYN. He's like, I deliver enough team baby. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Teen pregnancy babies all the time. No dating until you graduate. And then he changes the rule that they cannot, that Bianca, the younger sister, cannot date until her older sister, Kat, dates. Who wants to date? Who Who desperately wants to date future cult leader Andrew Keegan. Yes, which we'll get into as well. Very interesting details on that cult, by the way. Oh, Lord. I'm not, I am not prepared (laughs) (laughs) to receive this. Between this and the Sarah Lawrence reference in this movie, I'm very triggered by the cults. We just read this article, by the way, in the cut about the Sarah Lawrence cult. I'm sure you guys, some of you have read it insanity um so basically they're now with this new rule cat strafford like the older sister doesn't give a shit she doesn't want to date because like most of the dudes she in her high school suck so meanwhile bianca is after andrew keegan's character joey who's like a dumb jock uh who's also a model on the side <laughs> this picture or this picture is like a white shirt and a, a black t-shirt she's like oh it looks more pensive damn i was going for more thoughtful so good. Um, but anyway, so she's going after this guy who, uh, Andrew Keegan's character is a dick, and he basically wants to, uh, like, deflower Larissa Olenek's character, Bianca. Um, but meanwhile, there's a new kid at school played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's best friends with um, uh, David Crummeltz's character is big nerd. Basically, he's in love with Bianca as well, and he wants to date uh, this girl. So basically what he does is he does this elaborate plot to try to get to date her. Because he knows of this new rule that the older that Bianca can't date until her sister Kat dates, he Joseph Gordon Levitt and David Crumholtz conspire to find a guy that could date Kat, and they find Heath Ledger who plays Patrick Verona, um, and this is Heath Ledger's first big film. And basically, uh, they fall like Kat and Patrick get along great at first. He's dating her for the money, but then later uh, is ends up falling in love with her. She finds out um, in the and it's bad, but at the end they reconcile. In the meantime, Bianca stops being into Joey, uh, ends up liking Joseph Gordon Lovett's character. They through French lessons. Through French lessons. Oh yeah, he pretend he learns French so in that order can... to be her French tutor. She's like the sweetest. I mean, most adore everybody. I think this. it caused most teen girls to. I want someone to learn French for me. Oh my god, it... so cute. Also, just, like, peak adorable JGL. JGL. So cute. Is this pre-Third Rock from the Sun? Or Post. is it... Okay. Okay, so this JGL. So, um, basically, anyway, everyone ends up happy at the end. Um, there's a big prom scene where Save Ferris is the band for the prom, but uh, Letters to Cleo shows up because they're Kat's favorite band, and Patrick pays for them to show up. Eventually, we end up with uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Larissa Relanix characters are together, Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger's characters are happy and together um, because he buys her a guitar at the end to make up for everything. Um, And then, um, oh, and then there's also the side, like, Gabrielle Union plays Bianca's best friend who uh, ends up going out with Joey because she, all she cares about is Is being being popular. Can you ever just be whelmed? I think you can in Europe. (laughs) Um, And then, um, of course, David Crumholtz, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's best friend, ends up with a Shakespeare-obsessed Susan May Pratt, who we adore. Future center stage star. I am a goddamn dancer in the New York American Ballet. Who are you? I may have misquoted that. Um, It was pretty.
pretty close, though. It was pretty close. So she actually... Yelling at that poor doctor guy. So speaking of a dark turn, um, her character, <laughs> Susan May Pratt's character, doesn't have that many lines in this movie. She's really a minor, minor character. Um, and she's Julia Stiles' best friend, and later David Crumholtz's his love interest. Um, she's Shakespeare's best, but apparently in the original plot um, and script, she was supposed to be, like, frequently trying to commit suicide and because she wanted to be in heaven with Shakespeare. Oh, okay. Well, I could that could be funny. I don't know. It's uh, I don't know. Again, the PG thirteen ratings were the key thing. It's probably for the best that got cut. But um, anyway, so Susan May Pratt's character was supposed to be a much bigger role. So what's kind of crazy about this movie is that it was actually made and greenlit by Disney. Um, Touchstone at the time was their live action um, studio. But Disney had all these notes for who should get casted. Back then, this is right around peak Dawson's Creek. They really wanted, like, Katie Holmes as the Cat Straver character and <laughs> James Vanderbeek as the Patrick Verona character, which can you even imagine? No, like, that, that's a fucking terrible idea. would have been. I cannot picture Katie Holmes terrible. delivering that beautiful speech at the very oh my end God. that makes me cry every single Katie Holmes fucking would time. would not be a Bikini Kill fan. And unfortunately, I don't think that... I think James Vanderbeek is charming, but not in the way that Heath no, Ledger is. No, And I think James Vanderbeek's charm has come now with his self-deprecation after being in Apartment 23. I don't think he had it during Dawson's Creek time. I think he was a little too self-serious. I agree. Um, so the casting in this is pretty great. Like, at the time, they were considering all sorts of people. Like, Ashton Kutcher and Josh Hartnett auditioned for the Patrick role, which, like, again, could not even imagine. I feel like maybe Josh Hartnett, but yeah, no. And then Kat, Kate Hudson and Rachel Lee Cook for the cat role. Um, well, Rachel Lee Cook makes a ton of sense because she was on fire at this point. Right, and we'll we'll get into that in a bit. Um, but oh, yeah, don't worry. <laughs> She's all that is coming, unfortunately, for everybody. <laughs> but essentially, the casting in this is pretty incredible. Like, the woman who discovered Heath Ledger, they had looked at, like, hundreds of guys for this role. And then Heath Ledger just walked in. They're like, if this guy can speak English, he's our guy. And he could with a beautiful Australian accent, and he got cats pretty much on the spot. So did they write the accent bit into the film based on him yes. being cast? Yes, yes. And so essentially, um, at the time, they're filming, everyone becomes really good friends. Age discrepancies here a little bit. So um, Gabrielle Union was 25 when they filmed. I know. Gabrielle Union does not You age. put a side-by-side of her in Bring It On and Her Today, and you'd be like, I don't know which one's which. Good for you, Gabrielle I Union. I know. Um, and David Crumholtz was 20, but uh, the rest of them were kind of high school age. So Ledger, Heath Ledger and Keegan were both 19. Gordon Levitt, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Larissa Olenek, and Julia Stiles were all 17. In fact, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Julia Stiles dated as a result of filming this together. Um, they filmed this. Okay, guys, can we talk about the high school? Whose high school is this? This is definitely Okay, because I've definitely looked it up just, just in general because yes. the aerial shot at the very end, the first time I saw it, I was like, I want to go there. I am going to, I think I want kids, but if I get have kids, I'm moving to Tacoma, Washington because this is Stadium High School in Tacoma, Washington. Is it a public school? It is a public school. What the fuck? Talk about like some architecture beauty. I mean, it's just- I like, would never been kissed myself just to go to that high oh, school. likewise. Likewise. <laughs> I mean, minus the whole, like, creepy teacher and gross no, brother. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it opened the same day as The Matrix, which is 
insanity. That's some interesting counter-programming. Well, and it's... Because the audience that's going to see The Matrix is not this... I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of overlap, but not that much. Probably, like, a boyfriend or two, really. Yeah, we're, like, two degrees of boyfriend separation here. Right, and so it's kind of interesting, because I think they both serve as really great pre-Y2K capsules, like... Matrix sure. because of the theme and just how well it kind of went with all the Y2K fear and craze. I'm actually listening to a Y2K podcast right now where they talk to a bunch of like preparists and like people who actually thought like Doomsday was going to come upon us and Lord. like and and I was here just watching Can't Hardly Wait exactly. <laughs> at a slumber party. Exactly. And then of course, yeah, I mean it's just the the casting at the time. I think it it really it's amazing to see that they cast such great actors in those roles. Um, I think a lot of them um, went on to amazing careers, obviously. Like, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is JGL. Like, he just went did a couple of years of indie films. Um, and then after that, really kind of, I think, what did he do? Brick, he did... Um, he directed his own movie with Scarlett Johansson, like, Joe Schmo or whatever. Oh, Don, was, Don John. Yeah, Don Juan. Yeah, yeah. And then there was, like, the obviously, uh, he was in the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy, which Heath Ledger. He was in Black. Inception. Yes, Inception. He hasn't done something in a while, Looper. but 500 Days of Summer. I mean, I mean we can yeah. go on. Yeah. It's not like we need to remind you who Joseph Gordon-Levitt is. Of he course. hasn't done something in a while, but he's married to a French woman, so that makes me feel okay. Yeah, he speaks French. I'm. That's pretty awesome. Um, Julia Stiles um, didn't go on to do too much. I think after the teen, she had a bit of a teen movie renaissance where she was like, she did Down to You with Freddie Prince Jr., Save the Last Dance. That movie emotionally destroyed me. Which one? Down to oh, You! <laughs> what do you mean, which one? I also, know. Save the Last Dance. Yeah, I know. That's because one of my irrational fears growing up was that my mom would just, like, spontaneously die and I'd have to live with my dad, and that was, like, a nightmare to me. Oh. And so, Save the Last Dance was also emotionally destroyed. But that one started sad and then ended happy-ish. Yeah. But, like, Down to You was just, like, it starts out okay, and then just, like, fucking bummer. And then it ends all right, I guess. There's just kind of a weird plot twist at the end where you're, like, I really didn't think these characters would end up together, and here they are. And that was just kind of a quick resolution. It just, yeah, it felt like their relationship had a lot of issues that they hadn't yet solved. And they're, like, we're in love again. I'm, like, I don't know about this. (laughs) (sighs) Um, In terms of anything, like, other things that really interested me about this, of course, uh, the trajectory of Andrew Keegan's career. So, <laughs> Please tell me more. All right, so pre-10 Things I Hate About You, Party of Five, Seventh Heaven, sure. whatever. In 2014, he basically starts a cult. It's called Full Circle. He described the group as, quote, a non-denominational spiritual community center where people of all beliefs and backgrounds come together to meditate, practice yoga, and engage artistically. They're like Hare Krishnas or some shit. Yeah, some people, I think one interview or one uh, magazine article who had interviewed him basically said it had, like, some of Hinduism and, like, a little sprinkling of Buddhism. Well, like any good cult, you've got to, like, mix and match to find your right good cult recipe. So, wild fact, in 2015, they were raided by the California Alcoholic Beverage oh, Control right. Organization for distributing kombucha, <laughs> not realizing they needed a permit for that shit um, to distribute it. And then two years later, they closed. I think really all I'm going to talk more about this movie is just like, one, the soundtrack is, again, very iconic. Um, the two bands that really stand out are obviously going to be Letters to Cleo, who is um, Kat's favorite band. They never get really named in it, but they're They in don't. It. I had to figure, like, I had to figure this out because this was pre-MDB by pausing the credits oh, yeah. on my VHS tape. 
Um, so they're Cat's favorite band in the movie. They do a cameo appearance both at prom and at the end credits when they're on the, the top of the high school. Where you get to get a real nice look at this beautiful fucking high school. How people, again, readers, if any of you attended Stadium <laughs> High School to Email come us at oldmillennialspod at gmail.com. Can you tell that we just got an email address, you guys? <laughs> Only took eight episodes to figure out. Maybe we should have an email. The other band that shows up is Safe Ferris, who's the band that performs at the prom. And this is like peak uh, Scott Punk. So. Oh my god! I mean, they just—they should have had the fucking Aquabats. Oh my god! Maybe they were busy. <laughs> I saw—I saw the Aquabats at a friend's bat mitzvah. So what? they're available for bat mitzvahs. So maybe that's why they weren't able to shoot 10 that's things. Because that's right after <laughs> Travis Barker left the group to be in Blink-182. Yeah, definitely, because he was not there. No. I would have remembered that one. Uh, I had I had the privilege, question mark, of sitting in on a Blink-182-themed sketch show. And it was one of the most deranged readings I've ever been to. In a good way. It, there's... I've been, I cannot shut up about this sketch because it haunts me. Um, somebody wrote a parody of the rock show called The Butt Show about a person who falls in love with a butt. <laughs> and all of the questions that you have are addressed in the song. And <laughs> just know that the answers you seek are also still not in that song. Oh, God. Just more questions. Anyway. anyway. So the big thing, of course, the soundtrack. Um, the other interesting thing about this is uh, there's an iconic scene, of course, is the Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, where Heath Ledger, to make up for not kissing Kat at the party, which actually, good for him because she was drunk. So good on him. This is Consent. Consent. Ahead of its time. Good on you, girl. But back, backing it up to the party. Oh, yeah. The party's the, iconic. Yeah, party's iconic. She uh, dances to a Biggie song. I'd also say the paintball scene. First oh of all. Oh, my God. Making um, out at a paintball But field? no, no, no. Fuck this movie. It so, gave me false expectations of what paintball would be like. It's fucking painful. Have you been hit with a fucking paintball gun? You're not making out with anyone to semi-sonic in the background. No. So, mm, dark <laughs> confession. I did, like, an after-school Bible study thing because a dude that I had a crush on in high school. Stop asking questions. No. I fucking know. We've all done it, Margo. Remember 10 years of Catholic school over here. <laughs> exactly. I, of all people, I knew you'd understand. Anyway, <laughs> Bible study. Trying to get close to this dude. What a creeper move on my part. They just, they had like a paintball activity evening or whatever in like the parking lot. Yeah. This dude fucking nailed me in the butt, and I was not able to sit down for days. And also, I was doing dance five days a week at that point. That ruined practice that week. Oh, it did God. not happen. What a jerk. So I, I went into this Bible study fucking paintball fight thinking, like, it's going to be romantic, like, 10 things I hate about you. No, he nailed me in the ass, and that was it. <laughs> there was no makeout session. No. I was in pain. Uh. I was so shocked by how much it hurt. Um, oh, God. So, yeah, fuck you, movie. Cat so, backing up into Joey's car. I've oh, always wanted to do that. Me, too. Whoops. <laughs> Whoops. My insurance doesn't cover periods. Tell him I had a seizure. Oh, she's such a good character. And I think that's something that, again, stands out to me is, like, you had other standouts. Cher Horowitz is a great character in Clueless. You had other great heroines, but yeah, I mean, like like Daria, they're really, in the late 90s, most of the girls on, depicted in movies, if they were anything like Cat Strafford's character, were told to change their look, to like get rid of the glasses or get rid of their artsy ha- pastimes and just try Or, to I mean, Cat's thing was like, stop being so butch and into soccer? Yeah. 
Or, and, like, she was also mean or, right. like, unapproachable. Which but Disney then, fought against, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, then there was that whole thing where Kat was once popular and then Joey sexually assaulted her? Well, no, they, 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 he pressured her into having sex, so he could have assaulted her. I don't know. It's uh, basically, it alludes to, like, he, they, it was under pressure that she decided to have sex with him. And then after that, decided she would never do anything because of expectations that were brought upon her. And that's when she stopped being popular. That's an interesting piece to re-examine in light of it being 2019. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, this is where one of those, there are definitely, like, little tidbits in this movie where, like, that wouldn't happen. Um, the other thing is in the party scene, there is, like, this scene where some drunk girl goes up to Heath Ledger to make out with her. And he's like, make out with him. And then she, he just kind of shoves her to make out with this guy. And, like, that's not great. But really, for the most part, in, ni- in 2019... At least it was a throwaway moment and not, like, a subplot, like in ex- Never Been Kissed. Exactly. And, like, ultimately, I think I love seeing good dialogue. I like seeing the characters that are... Even Bianca, the character Bianca, over time you realize she's, you know, actually a really smart character and has a lot to say. And, and because of her, the influence of her sister is, you know, it turns out to have her own opinions and not go after, and plus the iconic scene at the prom. I think that's what all of these movies kind of share in common when you ignore (laughs) the problematic aspects or, like, the things that don't hold up as well in current times is that all of the main characters are autonomous and have their own wants and needs and motivations, and they aren't stereotypical. Right. They've had different journeys. They're not like, I was... I woke up and was popular and everything was fine and then the story ended. There's and, a lot more agency. Yes. Um, and then the final thing, shout out to Allison Janney. <laughs> 1999 is... Oscar a winner Allison Janney. It is a banner year for her. She gets this movie as the guidance counselor, Miss Perky, who also writes erotic <laughs> fiction. His bold... Okay. His quivering member. <laughs> oh my God. I did have a teacher in middle school who also wrote, like, she wrote, like, sexy mysteries yes. in her spare time. There was a woman who was in the residence life office at my college who wrote fairy erotic fiction, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> if someone went to college with me, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was a real thing. Well, in regards to Alice and Janie, all I have to say is lick my ass, Diane. She can do a triple. <laughs> um, so that's really what I have to say about 10 Things I Hate About You and where one that I think has stood the test of time for the most part. And how about she's all that, Margo? <laughs> Guys. <laughs> Guys. I, I I mean, it's in there, but please know that I'm fully aware of how this movie ends, and I don't condone it, but Paul Walker, RIP, I'm going to do my best to not disparage him since he did not write this. Um, she's all that by comparison to your teen rom-coms that didn't do financially well. She's all that actually was a box office hit it yes. hit number one the week that it came out a hundred million it went yeah it went on to make a hundred million dollars internationally all told um i also think that this contributed to the launch of the career of rachel lee cook of um this is your brain on drugs fame yes freddie prince jr after this would go on to make um down to you no not only down to you but he made another movie with I this know. director called boys and girls oh yeah with um Oh, Jason Biggs. Yes. But anyway, She's All That was released January 1999, so it also turned 20 earlier this year. It was directed by Robert Iscove, who would later go on to direct from Justin to Kelly, which <laughs> I could not keep that to myself. I'm so sorry that that movie, it, I think it's because I rewatched it recently that yeah. I cannot stop thinking about it. A movie that 
barely clears 90 minutes. Uh, and this movie was also ghostwritten by M. Night Shyamalan. Which... Did we ever confirm if that was, like, the exchange will let you make sixth sense if you ghost write edit? Well, that's what it says. Yeah, I, I yeah. think in some of my research, I, came, I didn't write it down in my notes, but it, I came across in my research that essentially he used this as leverage so that somebody would read his sixth sense spec script. And that's... This move... She's All That is to blame for M. Night Shyamalan, just in case you were looking around for <laughs> that. But I have come to terms with She's All That in the sense that I think that She's All That is our generation 16 candles on the level of things that don't hold up well that these stereotypes and the way that we look at consent and also the beauty standards for women um kind of all coalesce in this movie in the same way that six or 16 candles did where you're like how does this work in the real world yeah and so you know people forgetting a girl's 16th birthday you wonder how a family could do that regardless of wedding or not um, in this movie, you're left to wonder why Freddie Prince Jr.'s hacky sack slam poetry at the open mic night at a cafe was what <laughs> one Rachel Lee cook over. <laughs> at least silent, initially. Be still. Be silent. Be still. Oh uh, <laughs> She's All That is a modern retelling of My Fair Lady with a dash of trading places. Think about it. Just think about it. It's m- mostly like the bet and the person. Like, yeah. yeah. I will. I'll, I'll highlight when I think that. This is where I believe a little dash of trading places is being sprinkled in. But it's like Fair Lady in the sense that a guy gives a woman a complete makeover to make her acceptable to polite society. And in the process, he falls in love with her. And this time, instead of it being polite society in England, it is high school. So Freddie Prince Jr. is a really popular jock and also a prom king. Uh, of some nondescript SoCal high school, and he's unceremoniously dumped by his prom queen girlfriend, Taylor Vaughn, for Matthew Lillard's real-world character, Brock Hudson, which it's barely trying there because My Fair Lady is like a George Cougar movie, and he worked a lot with uh, Rock Hudson, and it just felt a little on the nose. Anyway, the school DJ slash morning announcement slash TMZ uh, usher, (laughs) who is criminally underused here, he's basically like plot-moving DJ guy, he takes the place of, like, what would be, like, an internal monologue that you hear as the audience. He's a Greek chorus, maybe? I wouldn't say that. Because no, he, no, he tells no. you what's going you're on. You're right. You're right. He's a narrator. But it's... I, I, I did... I, like I told you, my concern here was I don't think Usher's attending class and I'm a little worried. He's no, not, I think he's graduating. just... He is in this dark closet and people are, like, I don't know, give, passing him notes about the gossip because he announces to everybody to add insult to injury that Freddie Prince Jr.'s character has been unceremoniously dumped. Zach, sorry, I almost blanked on his name. Zach has been unceremoniously dumped for everybody to see, and he feels humiliated that his 17-year-old girlfriend is dating some 25-year-old weirdo that's on an MTV reality show. So with his prom king status in jeopardy, which there is an insane amount of pressure on everybody to maintain their prom king or queen status. Like, Taylor is obsessed with it. I mean, she gets some of, like, her best material being obsessed with being prom queen, yeah. I think. Yeah. But anyway, so when he when Dean, the campus douchebag, R.I.P. Paul Walker, challenges Zach to a bet when Zach goes on a rant about how he doesn't need Taylor, he can win prom king all by himself, and that he can make a prom queen like all women are the same. Taylor's just a push-up bra and some makeup. So Dean calls his bluff, and he's like, all right, I'll make you a bet. And this is where, like, it's a very low-stakes bet, where, like, all of the stakes are on the person who is – having all of the bet happen to them without their knowledge, and none of the stakes lie on the person who placed the bet on them. Right. 
So that's where it gets a little trading places for me. But anyway, uh, he bets Zach that he can he can transform any girl into a prom queen, and he picks the geekiest, aka the woman who wears glasses and is into art, Lenny Boggs, for his queer eye romantically transformation challenge. So after um, after that happens, it takes a couple of like every good movie, and this is the hero's journey. There are a couple of failed attempts at trying to get in there, but once he gets in there, we get this iconic makeover scene. We're, staircase. Yes, where Freddie Prince Jr. enlists his sister's help. They cut Lainey's hair. So we have basically the Rachel happens to Lainey, a.k.a. Yeah. Rachel Lee Cook. Thank you, pre-true blood Anna Paquin, for that haircut. Yes, as the spunky little sis. <laughs> um, and they hit it off. I think that at some point they call him out for catching Felix. But really, I think I just want to address this before I get into anything else. The... So the cast, if you, because it recently turned 20, a couple of interviews happened, especially with like E! Online, um, and they asked the question, do you think this movie could get made or rebooted or whatever today? And they all say no. Mm-mm. With respect, they don't think that there should be a reboot, spinoff, or reunion of any sort. And that's code for, it doesn't hold up because of <laughs> Paul Walker, R.I.P.'s character, uh, he sexually assaults Lainey. She hits him with an air horn in his ear, and then they play off his partial deafness like it's an archer joke. Yeah. Like, it's such a strange, like, mop. Like, he has a bizarre interaction. Like, it's not addressed later on. Like, Freddie Prince Jr. and Paul Walker get into it, but mostly because of who exposed the lie to her about right. that she was a bet. Right. Not because he sexually assaults her and she has like a clueless moment she's like let me the fuck out of your car yeah like tuck and rolls out right and then is clearly traumatized by the whole thing but everybody's like you're fine don't worry everybody like bat back pats her into thinking everything's you're okay cool. to graduate and then she ends up taking freddie prince jr back anyway so that is a really hard part to reconcile with whatever charms this movie has which i don't know if it necessarily has a charm as and it definitely doesn't really communicate the universal feeling of high school in the same way that Never Been Kissed does. Right. Which is, like, high school as hell. It's more just, like, pretty people, you know, banging dudes that are outside, that are way older than them. Well, and there's never a moment where I think, like, okay, we, we, we give Lainey some accolades for being a good artist, but they're, you know, because she's become popular at this point, she's, there's never really a, a moment of redemption where she kind of says you should stay true to yourself. I feel like. You know what I mean? Like No, instead we have this bizarre subplot with Freddie Prince Jr. who is hiding his college acceptance letters from his dad. And we have this varsity blues like, I don't want your laugh <laughs> moment. And it doesn't really go anywhere. No. No. It's just kind of, oh, you poor privileged white guy. You, you have to- so many colleges that you could possibly mm-hmm. go to. And I think his only problem is that he has a dead mom, which is a real Disney move. Well, no. It's um, it's Rachel Lee Cook's character. Oh, right? she has a dead yeah, mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's his deal then? He just he's he's just he's got two parents and a sister goes to private school. Right. He's he wants to play soccer and Dean won't get off his jock and stop being a dick to him. Yeah. There's really he's he's living. A there's not a ton of conf- life. Yeah. There's not like a ton of conflict. The conflict is when will the embarrassment of Lainey being a makeover project finally be exposed? So all of this ridicule that hinges on Rachel Lee Cook's character finding out or not finding out that the whole reason that this popular guy is paying attention to her and giving her a makeover is because she's a bet. Yeah. 
And there is, unlike trading spaces, there is, like you said, no redemption. There is no team up and get back at him or teach him a lesson. She just forgives him because all artsy nerdy girls are forgiving people. Again, the stakes are so fucking low that when he does lose the bet because he catches feelings for her, which I think is so bizarre. Again, Paul Walker, R.I.P., commits sexual assault in this movie. It doesn't get more high stakes than that. And the no. fact that it's just sort of like, whatevs, shrug, LOL, he can't hear, mom. It just it just feels very strange. And I mean, Freddie Prince Jr.'s, him losing the bet, is that he just has to go to graduation naked with only his honors sash and, and holding a soccer, a soccer ball. ball. Which, by the way, as two people who went to high school, no one would fucking ever let no. you do that. No, no, no. Unless he's got the robe that he just And he streaks. Stashed. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he streaks. Like, streaks. say you go up and then you take off your robe. Yeah. But no one's going to let you no. sit buck-ass naked. No. You bet. Best believe two hours vice principal. Two is... hours of speeches in the sun. You're telling no. me you're just sitting naked. Yeah. Yeah? I don't believe you. Freddie Prince Jr. No, I mean, between... And don't get me wrong, I fucking love Freddie Prince Jr. We, we, I love him, too. He's a total hot dad now. Completely. And I stand him and Sarah Michelle Gellar... Forever. Always. Um, no, I think between, yeah, the sexual assault plotline, the fact that the popular girl that Jodie Lynn O'Keefe plays, his ex-girlfriend, ends up dating some 25-year-old dude when Who she's Who is 17. definitely alluded to doing coke on this spring break special where he breaks up with her. I mean, that's all its own... Str- and that it, actually, honestly, always felt like a different movie. Yeah. Like, I felt like we didn't really need to follow her. No. Have this failed relationship. And her failing at this relationship with Matthew Lillard is what fuels her to tell Lainey about what's really going on. On. Because he tells Taylor initially, Freddie Prince Jr.'s character tells Lainey, or Zach initially tells Taylor, his ex girlfriend, that he actually has feelings for Lainey and she doesn't believe him. And then when she presses Dean and finds out that it's all a big bet, she can't help but run to Lainey and blow up this whole spot. Right. And then Dean also helps with that too, I think. I believe so at yeah. the prom where they have a, v- and uh, let's, uh, we'll give them credit. The prom scene where they all bust into a choreographed Moby dance is great. Amazing. Amazing. It's a really good set piece. I really enjoyed that. Again, another thing that gave me false expectations of prom. Although, our dance floor was pretty good, though. I gotta say. But there were no cord- There was nobody coordinating any efforts. No, absolutely not. Um, oh, gosh. The other things about this movie to know. Sixpence, six none the richer, made their entire career... Out of being used in this movie they multiple were a times. a Christian band before that. Do you know that? I think so. And, like, their song, that they allude to God. Like, the trail mark down your father's map. It's about God. Oh, right, all right. Okay, no, I did read something about them being a Christian band. But I blocked out of my mind because I'm like, I don't know any other songs. I'm not looking into it. No. It's fine. Um, although this is very stereotypical and silly, the makeover scene, when you're seeing it for the very first time when you're 10... When she comes on that staircase, does kind of it's a moment. Oh, you yeah. stop and yeah. it, you it's it's definitely something that's a touchstone, a cultural touchstone. Oh, of course. And it's also something that gets like spoofed on too in other movies as yeah. well. Um, Sarah Michelle Geller, speaking of uncredited roles, has an uncredited role in this as girl in cafeteria. Oh yeah, she's like Kieran Culkin plays the little brother, and he's like doing fresh ground pepper for everyone. Like, what kind of He's not making any money, so basically it's that goofy little brother stereotype of yeah. like I'm gonna do a cornball thing. Oh, my God. I don't get it. It's such a strange thing. Yeah. Uh, I saw this movie in theaters opening weekend. Really? And I loved it. 
I think it was. I actually should check right now because I wasn't entirely sure if it's PG. I think it's PG-13. It is PG-13, but I went with my mom and a friend, so it's fine. I bet you that's why the Coke stuff, it's, like, alluded to, but it's never quite shown again. And it's also something that I did not pick up on until... Recent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I haven't seen... I did... I couldn't find it readily available the way that Never Been Kissed is just on HBO. This is, like, behind an Amazon thing, and I didn't have time to rewatch it, but I did watch it about 10 years ago. And I thought that the things that kind of rub you the wrong way back then still kind of stick out even more so now. Yeah. Um, but I was really, I remember when, even when I watched it about 10 year, ten or so years ago, I was struck by how much it didn't really hold up even then. No, no, it really doesn't. And I think, uh, again, society, all that, we moved on. And I think what's, what's interesting is like for how many teen comedies at the time were so ahead of their time, this one was, is very much best left in 1999. Yes. I, I, apart from it having, um, a successful box office. There's not really much about it that is super groundbreaking by any means. No. Because the fair lady trope, or borrowing from fair lady, excuse me, has been done a couple more times and better. Yeah. And at least my fair lady has the benefit of, you know, being of its time. Yeah, no, absolutely. But 1999 was, we can run through a couple honorable mentions, but it was a remarkable time, especially for rom-coms. Yes. Notting Hill, Pretty Woman 2, Runaway Bride, (laughs) Forces of Nature... Blast from the Past, which I think actually does hold up really well, because I saw that a couple years ago, and it's still so good. I need to rewatch that one. And The Bachelor starring Chris O'Donnell, which we talk about in our Bachelor and Beyond episode. Um, which I think it's pretty remarkable. Like, Notting Hill is really good. Yeah. Blast from the Past is really good. I'd say The Bachelor and Forces of Nature are about on the same level, where there are elements of it that are great, but some of the stars maybe don't quite gel. Like, Ben Affleck is a rom-com lead is... It doesn't work. It just never has, really, has it? But this wasn't as bad as, like, say, a Gigli or a Jersey Girl. No, no, but he made a bunch of duds around that time, because there's, like, Bounce was another one, I think. Um, Oh, was that, like, Sliding Doors Light? Yeah, yeah, because Gwyneth Paltrow, that's when they got back together, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Was Simply Irresistible also 1999, or was that nine? Yeah, so that's, that was not I mean, that was a total dud, though. A total dud, um... Although I love Patricia Clarkson and, of course, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, I mean, it it had too many ideas right. is the reason. I think it could have been, like, she's trying to open a restaurant and preserve her family's legacy, but she can't also be in a nep- Like, the whole... It was muddled, but A for effort on all accounts. Of course, of course. Well, what do you think? Do you have any other movies that you wanted to touch yeah, on? I mean, I think the one thing that I wanted to bring up is because we did talk a lot about the teen movies that came out during that time. Of course, it's it comes out maybe a year or two later, but there's not another teen movie, which is just a parody of all those movies. Um, and it's interesting because the lead, the Freddie Prince Jr. character is in fact played by Chris Evans. Huh. His first big role. Um, good on you, Chris Evans. Not a great movie, but like, you know, pretty big role for your first major holiday. I mean, movie. I think that not another teen movie is better than his turn in cellular i would agree <laughs> there are a lot of people random people who show up and not another teen movie i recently rewatched it i mean it does point out the, the the very big stereotypes of like the one black friend and like these and like having the you know sexy sister character that we talk about in cruel intentions but yeah i mean like a lot of those other movies like the scary movie franchise it's pretty gross out humor and like very of its time and probably wouldn't get made now yeah, nobody really does 
like an airplane, a, a spoof movie. Those don't no, really get made that often anymore. No, I mean they're just kind of can't, like campy and not in a good campy way. No, I, there's kind of no real way for them to not be super offensive. For right. Some, for some reason. Right. Maybe there is a way, but it's not commercially viable if it is. No, no, but it is kind of fascinating. Anna Ferris's big first role was scary, scary movie. movie. Another great part in that article where she talks about the house bunny was her going back home to her small town in Washington and she forgot her ID going to a bar and she yelled at the bouncer like don't you know who I am and he was like no and she was like that was the last time I ever said that to somebody good for you Anna Ferris. at least you got that out of your system early on in your career but I think all things considered my favorite teen rom-com still is Clueless it yeah. just holds up the best and it's the one I quote the most I and then I think it, well it's not a rom-com I guess but think closely behind is Mean Girls, which just turned 15 today. I mean, and that's really, I mean, that's, I think for us, we we enjoy all these teen movies from the late 90s, but they're definitely, we weren't in high school during that time. And we, I think we appreciate them in a different way that say, like, a lot of my cousins and a lot of um, family friends who were born in, like, or friends who were born in the, you know, mid to early 80s appreciate them more because that was their high school years. Yeah. Those movies came out then. Mean Girls for us was very much our, this is what high school is like for us. Yeah, I think I was a sophomore. Me too. Yeah, it was definitely yeah, after sophomore year. Oh, well, that's the golden age of rom-coms. There you go. You can follow us on Instagram. We're at the old millennials pod. That's right. The old millennials pod. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I am at Margs, she wrote. And I am at Emily A. Beijing. And if you want to email us some hot tips that Emily requested throughout the episode, we're at theoldmillennialspod at gmail.com. Thank you. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.